Our special music this morning is, is special. We use that term too often and don't even realize what it means. We, we have um, some songs that are going to come at the end of the, of the lesson t- today. But for special music, we want to have one song from this new, relatively new DVD. It's a composer that began studying the Adventist faith a few years ago, and the more he studied, the more he, be, he delved into it, the more excited he, he got. He had, the, he had the gift of creating music, both music as well as the, as, as the words. And today we're going to have one of the songs from this DVD on the screen um, about the Sabbath. And uh, what's the first song? The first song is simply the most distinct, or at least in the public imagination, the most distinct Adventist doctrine. That is, the Sabbath is Saturday. The day of rest commanded to be observed uh, through Moses, the Ten Commandments. And uh, Adventists believe that that is an eternal message. God rested after six days of creation. We should rest too. Okay. And uh, this is Remember the Sabbath. And I love the song because we live in modern times with a lot of stress. At any given moment, we could think, I need to do this, I need to do that. God says, slow down. Amen. I want you to honor me and remember the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And who wrote this song? Uh, I wrote it, and my wife contributed to it lyrically. All right. It's become a good song. Okay.
Amen. I want all of you to uh, turn to the front of your bulletins, uh, and we'll read together Revelation 21, 5 through 7. Revelation 21, 5 through 7. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Our brother Dean is now going to bring us the message today. Good morning, church, and a special welcome to our visitors. Thank you. The subject today will be, All Things Are Now Ready. Those are words of Jesus from two different parables that he gave us. But first I would like to tell you a true story. And it's meaningful to me because at one point in life, um, we were out in Southeast Asia struggling, at least this fellow was struggling to learn the Thai language. And it was a real, uh, a real ordeal you see. And I think God created us in, in His image. Remember what the Bible says? He created us in His image in, in Genesis. Well, I think that means many things, perhaps somewhat physically, but more importantly, I think it probably means emotionally. Uh, we have humor, we have sadness, we have many things. Remember, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. So Jesus had those emotions. Um, there's a missionary that went out to Africa. He was all excited because he was in the middle of Africa. He wanted to be a missionary for a long time. He was finally there among the Bantu Africans, Bantu Africans. So he was learning their language. And here's what happened. He finally thought he had it down. He had it mastered enough that he could get up and preach to his African people to see if he could tell them about the gospel. Well, for some reason that morning he decided to preach on the exodus of the children of Israel leaving Egypt, going into, going towards Canaan, the promised land. So here's what happened. He, he, said, he said what he thought was, let me say this again, he said what he thought he was saying was right. Does that make sense? But what happened, what came out of his mouth to the Bantus were these words. The red mosquitoes crossed the Red Sea and swallowed up Moses. Um, so the missionary went back for further study of the Bantu language. <laughs> true story, true story. And it was meaningful to me trying to remember back in those days when I was trying to learn the Thai language. Okay, all things are now ready. These are words from the lips of Jesus. Jesus, our Savior, came to us from the throne of the universe to this tiny planet in our solar system because our first parents decided to side with Satan. The great controversy is huge. It is universal-wide. It affects all of God's creation. Today we will look at two of Jesus' remarkable stories he told. You know, he came from the throne of the universe to this earth. He preached, he taught, he created miracles. But one of his main objectives was to tell stories. Stories that the smallest child could understand, and yet the most advanced and educated person could study the stories for a lifetime and not completely exhaust its meaning. So we'll look at two of these stories today called parables that Jesus told. Um, first, however, we would like to look at some Bible scripture that is also very remarkable it talks, by the way, most of Jesus' parables had something to do with judgment and the end of the world. If you go back and think about it, many of them, perhaps most of them, had this theme of judgment and of the end of the world. But always with an invitation to come and follow me, Jesus said. First, though, let's look at some other scriptures that are quite remarkable. We come to Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, 
for a witness unto all nations, and then the end will come. So that is happening now, and other things are happening as well. Let's, let's go to Matthew 24, 29. And I discovered something that's rather obvious, but it just hit me again as I was preparing for, for this lesson. Immediately, this is verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days so that shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. That's an imperative. It will happen. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. Do you know the very next words in Scripture? You know what they are? And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So here we have the prediction of the falling of the stars, the dark day, the moon will not give her light, the sun will not give its light. And then immediately following, in Jesus' own words, the Son of Man appears in heaven. Well, let's go to Luke 21, see what Luke has to say. And there shall be signs in the sun, verse 25, there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity and the sea and the waves roaring. The next verse, 26, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. John, our friend John out in the Isle of Patmos had something to say as well. Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. You remember the seals. The sixth seal is just before Jesus comes. The seventh seal is when Jesus does come. And I beheld, and he opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake, a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken by a mighty wind. And then, verse 14, And the heavens departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Prediction of Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven. The predictions of Jesus' own lips and of John from the Isle of Patmos were fulfilled. The three distinct Bible passages prophesying this, sun, moon, and stars, and the earthquake. The massive earthquake in 1755 of Lisbon fulfilled that prophecy. Estimated 90,000 people died in a few minutes. There were probably many, many more than, than that. And it affected about half of the planet. There's never been such an earthquake in the history of, of Earth. One, one quote is this, The terror of the people was beyond description. Nobody wept. It was beyond tears. They ran hither and thither delirious with the horror, beating their faces, saying, the end of the world has come. On May 19, 1780, a day of infamy, the famous dark day, people frightened, saying, the end of the earth has come. Unearthly darkness, the moon and the sun, was nowhere to be found. The sun had disappeared. News reports reported it this way, midnight darkness at noonday fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus himself. Then the Old Testament, we had one in Joel 2.31. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. These things have come and gone. The falling of the stars were next. The falling of the stars that day went on for hours. Thousands of meteors flashing through the sky went on for hours and hours. All these were direct fulfillment of prophecy. Every one of these prophecies immediately followed by the prediction of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In view of all this then, how should we then live? We come now to related parables of Jesus. Luke 14, 16 and onward. 
And he said unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things were now ready. Remember the words, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one assent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of land. I must go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done, even as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The new earth. This is a remarkable parable from Jesus that has to do with the end of all things. The end of the earth as we know it and the dawning of eternity. It has to do with the words of Jesus about the sheep and the goats in another place in Scripture and about those names that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and other names written in the Book of Death. Before we explore this remarkable story, we need to focus in on the first words of the parable. Come, for all things are now ready. What things? What is Jesus talking about here? All things are now ready. We focus further on the word all. Not some things, not many things, but all things, everything. This is what Jesus is talking about, the day of the cross, that day of infamy, of gross darkness, that day that millenniums of time had pointed forward to, the day of the cross. That day the Lord of glory being suspended between heaven and earth, yet that was the day that you and I received our freedom from sin and the day that gives us eternal life and the dawning of eternity for each one of us. Mark fifteen twenty nine has something to say. And they passed by and railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildeth in three days, save thyself. They shot up at him, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the Chief priests, mocking, said unto themselves with the scribes, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, they said in derision, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him as well. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lamax thabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, well, behold, he called for Elias. Mark here talks about three different groups and classes of people. There were those that were just passing by on the road beside Golgotha. They were just passing by. They were busily passing by on their way to some appointment or business, totally unaware of the greatest event in human history happening right there before them. Scripture records that as they passed by, they railed on him, wagging their heads. What a word picture in Scripture. As they passed by and said, Ah, you that have destroyed the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself now. Come down from the cross. Yes, you are stuck there. Overcome your nails and come down. Then there were the priests, not only the priests, but they were the chief priests, the heavy, big theologian type. They were mocking, saying, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Himself he cannot save. They said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. See and believe. Now we come to a major pearl of truth, this saying that they said, we that we may see and then we, we, we will believe. This contrasts with Satan's deception who says, see and then you believe. God says just the opposite. Believe and then you will see. 
This is the difference of those who are saved and those who are lost. For salvation, we do not see and then believe, as the priests were suggesting, but by faith, we believe first, and then we see. God opens our minds to the truth, and then we see. The third group are those that were there. They were interested in prophecy to some extent. They knew of a prophecy in the Old Testament about Elias coming, and they said, And some of them that stood by heard Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they said, He calleth for Elias. For all three groups, it was seeing and then believing. But God's way is to believe, and then you will see. At the sixth hour, God wraps Jesus hanging on that cross in darkness for three hours. For those hours, no one could see the hand in front of their face. It was gross darkness. What more did the chief priests need to wake them up, to get their attention? Number one, a mighty earthquake occurred. That didn't seem to get their attention. A mysterious three hours of darkness did not seem to get their attention. Then an unseen hand tore the curtain in the temple, exposing the most holy place where God had dwelt for centuries, from top to bottom. That did not seem to get their attention. They were still bent on Jesus' destruction. Mark tells us that the centurion heard Jesus' statements from the cross and saw him die, and he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Why did he see so clearly and the priest could not see clearly? As a Roman centurion, he was risking his own life to say those words and to even hint that he was a follower of Jesus. As Jesus died, it was the focal point of all history, and it was indeed a fulfillment of the parable, all things are now ready. The second part of all things are now ready is the day of the mighty resurrection. Even this event comes the cry down through the ages of recorded history, the cry of Mary from Magdala, she had at the tomb of her Lord. They have taken my Lord. They have taken my Lord. I do not know where he is. I do not know where to find him. Have you ever made that cry yourself? By your circumstances or perhaps by bad decisions you have made? Are you searching for the Lord? Have you been there and cried out to find him? According to Matthew 28, let's read those words. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, there came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. The early morning had come. The dawn was about to break. As the disciples were to experience, it was darkest just before the dawn. Christ was still a prisoner in that tomb, a huge stone locking him inside. Satan still exhilarated by the fact that he thought he had won the great controversy. Hosts of evil angels were certainly there, formerly God's angels, now siding with Satan. Likewise, angels from God's throne were there. One mighty angel had come down through space and rolled away the stone as if it were a pebble. And then he sat on it, essentially saying, well, what do you think about that, Satan? It was accompanied by a mighty earthquake. The Roman guards, though tough Roman guards, fell as dead men to the ground, helpless. There was a mighty earthquake again. Now when Jesus died on the cross, there was a mighty earthquake. There was another one now as he comes from the tomb. This angel had a countenance according to scripture as lightning and his raiment was white as snow. The cry comes, Son of God, come forth. Thy Father calleth for thee. The death was gone. Jesus had the victory over death as he rose from that tomb. Jesus had used this same power that now raised him to raise Jairus' daughter to life. The same power that he used to raise the son of the widow of Nain to life the same power that he used to raise Lazarus from his tomb. It is the same power that raises us if we go to sleep before he comes in the clouds of heaven. So he comes forth as King of kings and Lord of lords.
God's surprises continue, however. It is a biblical principle that those who seek him sincerely will find him. Such is the case of precious Mary. Mary, the great sinner in the eyes of everyone around her. All eyes except Jesus' eyes. He saw through to her aching heart. She it was who came to the tomb seeking Jesus when most of the disciples were hiding in fear. She found him after her cry. They have taken my Lord. I do not know where to find him. Tell me that I may go to him. The scripture tells us, seek and you will find. The resurrection is the second key in the answer. All things are now ready. The Lord of glory was put to death by the most ardent religionists of history. Let's say that again. The Lord of glory was put to death by the most ardent so-called religious people of history. In our parable we've read, we find a tremendous surprise. For all that were bidden started to make excuses. This is not how it usually is in life. We enjoy going to a dinner to a banquet. They all with one consent began to make excuses. The first one, I bought a field, I must go see it. Well, that's ridiculous. Who would buy a field without going to see it first? So it was a, it was a blatant excuse. The next one, I bought a yoke of oxen, I must go to see them. Well, wouldn't you want to see them first before you bought it? So they were just lying. These were only excuses, totally false excuses. The field would not have run away. It would have been there when they got back. The oxen likely would have not run away. They would have been there when the banquet was finished. The wife probably wouldn't have run away. She would probably have loved to go to a banquet. Jesus was saying here, most or many religious people will miss out on the kingdom of God because they are too preoccupied with life, with less important things than salvation. Most of us do not have the courage to participate in outrageous sins. Jesus is telling us here, the great sinners are not really the great sinners. The great sinners are not the great sinners. The great sinners are those that are preoccupied with anything less than the gospel. Often the good replaces the best. How easy it is for that to happen. So we find respectable sins. God either matters tremendously or he does not matter at all. To be preoccupied with anything less than God and his gospel is to be in a most dangerous position. It is most interesting to notice that none of the villains in Christ's parables are very villainous. This is shocking. The rich fool is not an atheist. The man who planned to build new barns to hold all his goods, well, he's a good financier. Nothing wrong with that, is there? He was planning for the future. Nothing wrong with that. His problem was that he was too preoccupied with his wealth. He left God out of his equation. The Almighty God was not part of his future and his planning. Jesus had the most solemn words, Thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And he was a lost man. And so the parable says that the king is very angry and tells his servants to go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant went to the Lord and said, It is done, and still there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. What a word picture in scripture of the last days of this earth's history happening all around us right now. The gospel, compel them to come in that my house may be filled, but none of those men which were invited shall taste of the banquet. What solemn words may remind us all that this parable is one of the last gospel message spoken of in Revelation 14, the three angels' messages. The parable is one of the end of all things and of judgment of those who will one glorious day eat at the banquet feast in the heavenly kingdom spoken of in Revelation 19. This is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To whom much is given, much is required, says the Lord. It is possible that some of the lame, the maimed, and the blind, and the poor will take my place 
at the banquet table of Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are all invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come, he says, for all things are now ready. The most remarkable part of this parable is the statement, all things are now ready. There are many surprises in the story. It is a surprise to find God pictured here as a generous host. It is not so much a judge commanding his servants to go out and find people, although it is that, but it is the generous God saying, come, for all things are now ready. Not the major or chief things, not some things, not a number of things, not most things, but all things are now ready. Not one day, not in the future, but now. All things are ready now. The servant did not ask the lame and the maimed to give an offering. They did not test them to see how strong they were. They did not check them out to see how handsome and beautiful they were. The people who missed out on the supper were those who had great advantages. Those who were lost. Here we find their abilities went against them. Now let's turn the coin over to the other side. Their very weaknesses their inadequacies, their disadvantages. It is the other way around. Why? Because they knew who they were and they knew they were helpless and they needed a Savior. Paul said it so beautifully in Hebrews eleven thirty four: Out of weakness were made strong. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. In weakness. The rich did not respond to the invitation of the king's supper. The wealthy did not come. The strong did not come. The handsome did not come. These were the privileged ones. They did not come. Jesus told this story because it has an application to each one of us during our entire lifetime. To whom much is given, much is required. What fools we are at times. We worship the earthly temporary things. The people who sat down at the feast to eat were the poor and the ugly, and they gladly rejoiced, joyfully came to the wedding feast. What a surprise from God. The world says, blessed are the rich and the gifted and the handsome and the pretty. Jesus, in his greatest sermon, said something else. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that seek after righteousness. The gospel is full of surprises. God makes the way easy for those who have nothing and come as beggars. But the way is blocked for those who have need of nothing and think that they are spiritually fit and they have arrived. They, did, they do not see that they are wretched and poor and blind and naked and are in spiritual trouble. Do we gather up all of our crumbs to bring to God's dinner? How would you like it if you invited people to dinner and someone brought moldy bread? Someone else brought sour milk. Someone else brought food that had been out of refrigeration for two weeks. Do you and I bring our crumbs of righteousness to God? No, God says, all things are ready. I have prepared it for you. All things are ready now. It is done. It is ready. We just must come to Jesus as we are. Then in the coming to Jesus, we are changed. He transforms us. In the first Adam, we all have condemnation and are sinners. In the second Adam, we all have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus must have thought this parable was very important for salvation because he told a similar story in Matthew 22. Let's read that quickly. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding that they would come. Again he sends forth other servants saying, Tell them that are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. All things are ready. Come into the marriage that they might... And they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise... And the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies to destroy those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not 
worthy. Go thee therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man that did not have a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, isn't that amazing? He said, Friend, how camest thou in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Familiar words we hear again, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. All things are now ready. This parable rapidly turns to each man's decision to accept God's invitation or reject it. It tells of the man who came to the wedding feast with his own righteousness. He brought his moldy bread, if you will, to help God prepare his supper, you see. He brought his own righteousness. He did not think he needed Christ's robe of righteousness. According to Jesus' own words, God had a terrible surprise for the man. He was bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. He was a lost man. It is only when we see ourselves in the light of the cross that our heart is broken and we all fall down before him. We do not bring our moldy bread. We do not bring our own righteousness as did this man in the parable. We just bring our broken hearts and we're there to sit at the marriage feast of Revelation 19. Jesus did not come on a goodwill visit to earth. He began his ministry and John baptized him in the muddy Jordan. When he came up out of the water, he was not announcing a goodwill visit. Jesus' sacrifice had to die. Our Lord died a perfect offering for the sins of the world. The heavens were rent open and the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. Then when he went down into death at the cross, the sacrifice was accepted. And you and I have eternal life now. Present tense. Our debt was paid. AD 31. This is why Jesus told stories of invitation, the parables of the wedding, the feast and the banquets, and announced that all things are now ready. Recurringly this morning, we've heard the words of Jesus saying, all things are now ready. So what is Jesus doing now? What is he doing now? Let's go back to Scripture. You remember Acts 1, 8 to 11, where Jesus asked his disciples to come out and meet him on that grassy hillside outside of Jerusalem. So they were there that day. And Jesus had told them about sending the gospel to the whole world. He had been with them for three years. And as they stood there, Jesus suddenly, defying gravity, goes up into the clouds to the universe central, up to the throne of God. And again, we find a slight bit of humor. As they were standing there, they beheld him, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Why wouldn't you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. You've heard the word so many times. As Christ ascended to his Father that day, Hebrew, Hebrews tells us exactly where he went. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, referring to Moses building a tabernacle in the desert, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He went into that temple itself, into the sanctuary, by his Father's presence there, and the Eternal Father is there for us, the same as Jesus is right now. We will hear of this in the form of a song in a few moments. 
I want to tell you a quick story about the early 1800s that relate to today's message. Early 1800s, there was a Baptist farmer who somehow had just gotten a burden that he should be studying the Bible. He had a special interest in Daniel and Revelation and the prophecies. Um, the burden was overwhelming for him. So as he started studying, the farming business went in the background and his studying became paramount. And he studied for hours and days, weeks and months, and finally years. And finally he was putting things t together quite well. And the news of him doing this began to get around in the community. And so one day he, he got the impression that maybe he should go out and preach. And then he quickly said to himself, no way, I'm not going to do that. And so this burden was on his mind and on his mind, and it kept hitting him. You need to go preach. And he pushed it away, he pushed it away. And finally he said, okay, Lord, I'll tell you what I'll do. If anybody comes and asks me to preach, I'll do it. And he said, that's it, Lord. It's not going to happen. So he went back to his farm. That very day, somebody did come and knock on his door and asked Miller to go preach at a, at a distant church. He still fought with the Lord. He still fought with himself. Not going to happen, not going to happen. And finally he, he gave in and he did go a weekend and, and start preaching. That was just the beginning of the story. That then took off in a huge way in the next few years. And tens of thousands of people became excited about the second coming of Jesus. And it was based on Daniel 8.14, the 2300-day prophecy, which is the 2300-year prophecy. And that ended in 1844, October of 1844. And history is replete with news reports of what happened. These people with all sincerity of heart, the farmers quit planting their crops because Jesus was coming in October of 1844. And so there they were, the day finally arrived, and they gathered together in little groups all over the New England area. And tens of thousands of these people were gathered in various locations, looking up in the heavens. Jesus was going to come. And the afternoon came on. Late afternoon. Early evening. Dusk. They still were there. Well, we have until midnight, they thought in their minds. Midnight came. Jesus didn't come. It's referred to in history as the great disappointment. It was a phenomenal thing, a phenomenal thing. And some people that had, that had caught on to this, this message became very angry. Others were humiliated. They left in disgust and anger. But there was a remnant who said, look, there's something wrong with our interpretation. We know the Bible's true. We know Jesus is true. We know this, and the remnant started studying even more deeply. And within a few months, they realized, oh, the sanctuary referred to in Daniel 8, 14, was the heavenly sanctuary. Something happened there, nothing to do with the earthly sanctuary and the second coming of Christ. So this modern songwriter that you've already heard uh, began studying the history of our church. He's come up with eight or ten songs, and I thought we would close with two of them. The first one that um, we're going to see and hear, it's a beautiful thing, one of the greatest songs I think ever, ever written. It's on the sanctuary. And then I'll introduce the last one after that. Well, when I first started reading about Adventist doctrine, it seemed that the most controversial one was the sanctuary doctrine. Mm. And it was important in Adventist history because the sanctuary doctrine was, was illuminated to some of the early saints to explain the great disappointment. Something happened in 1844. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel made a prophecy about something. And I was talking to Chris, and how do we write this song? Well, after reading some of the, the scriptural references given to me by uh, C.A. Murray and John Lomacang and you, Danny, it's scriptural. We have a high priest Amen. in heaven. Amen. He's in a heavenly sanctuary. All right. It's analogous to the sanctuary in old Israel, mm -hmm. the Day of Atonement. And Jesus is ministering to us. He did the work at Calvary 
shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of sin. Amen. Yet we stray. He needs to forgive us again if we will repent, and he will. Yes. Furthermore, in his sanctuary ministry, he still hears the prayers of sinners. Amen. Praise God for The that. day will come. We know that the second coming is going to happen. Jesus will come in clouds of glory in the first resurrection and take the body of Christ home. But now Jesus is looking at the, the law books, the books of our behavior. Mm-hmm. He finalizes our salvation. He hears the prayers of sinners, and he still forgives those who, who love him that Amen. stray. That's what Lord. this song is in the sanctuary. Lady? All right. We have a high priest up in heaven, hallelujah, oh hallelujah, he's our defender before the Father, in a temple made by God, not man, behind the
William Miller was like a Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation. He was the leader of the group in the early 1800s that were studying so diligently into their scriptures and made this one error. Everything else was pretty well right on except what happened at the end of 1844 there. Um, you can imagine the disappointment of those people. Yet William Miller came up with these famous words, my mind is fixed on another time. And he began studying and then he found out with further study that Jesus was going to come but no dates can, can be set. And something happened in the heavenly sanctuary. But there's a song that this songwriter has written. My mind is fixed on another time. October of 1844. He felt he was in God's will and operating according to the proper biblical principles of prophecy from, from passages in Daniel. Christ didn't come back. Many people lost the faith. William Miller did not. He said, Lord, I don't know what happened, but I know you're coming back. That's the Adventist part of William Miller. Uh, Ellen White in later years said, you know, William Miller didn't get it all right, but he was an important character in Adventist history. And to this day, we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back. But William Miller wrote, and it was published in The Midnight Cry, he says, I have fixed my mind on another time. And here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. He's coming back. I know he'll explain what happened. And that is today, today until he comes. And I, once again, was such powerful, a powerful passage that I thought this needs to be a song. So I have fixed my mind on another time. Amen. All right, let's do it. I have fixed my mind on another time, on another time. And here I mean to stand until God gives me more light. And On the narrow way, on the narrow way, for I know the time is close at hand for which I watch and pray. And that is today, today, today. course on the narrow way, on the narrow way. Even so, Lord, come quickly. This is my fervent prayer, for I've caught a glimpse of
son of man appear the son of man appear even so I ask you this morning, who is most anxious for the remnant, the redeemed of all the ages from the beginning of time till now to enter the new Jerusalem? Who's most anxious? The angels? God the Father? The Holy Spirit? The redeemed? Or could it be Jesus himself. I think it's Jesus himself. The one who came and died for us. Let's bow your heads with me, please. Oh God, this morning, Jesus is waiting for each one to so firmly establish ourselves in the faith that we cannot be moved. May each one look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And may each one know that Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary, working in our behalf. May we have our minds fixed on another time, the soon coming of Jesus. Oh God, help us to know that eternity is real. When we see Jesus through the endless ages of eternity, we remember from Revelation 19.13 where we're told that Jesus has a white robe, but on that white robe there'll be a stain of blood to remind us of what he has done for us. May we all be there in Jesus' name. Amen.